This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 13 of the Dressage Radio Show on the Horse Radio Network, presented by Equestrian Life, exclusive coverage of the world of dressage. This week we have Desi Dillingham and British Dressage. We would like to thank our sponsors, Equestrian Life. They can be found at equestrianlife.com and Kentucky Performance Products at kppusa.com. This is Chris Stafford in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Heather Blitz in SBI Denmark, and you're listening to the Dressage Radio Show presented by Equestrian Life. Well, hi, Heather. How are you doing this week? I'm great, Chris. Welcome back. We've missed you. <laughs> oh, that's very nice of you, but I know that Reese did a great job stepping in into my shoes, and she's going to take over the chair, too, while uh, you're gone, because you're heading off uh, very soon, aren't you, on tour? I am. I'm getting ready to go for about three weeks of um, straight teaching in the States. I think there's about 115 lessons I'm going to get through there. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. I have two new locations, which I'm really excited about, and then uh, three other locations that I've been to on a regular basis. So I get to see old friends and new. So um Really looking forward to that. So now that you're back in town, I'm going to be heading out of town. Yeah, well, I'm glad we at least got to, uh, you know, do one more show before we hand over the reins again to Reese. And uh, again, thanks, Reese, for, for, for joining us over the last two weeks and standing in for me. And uh, and, and it's going to be fun having having her back while you're gone, too. So it uh, be 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 interesting uh, dynamics to, to change her co-host. And I think we'll do that again in the future because you get so busy, Heather, uh, we don't want to put too much of a burden on you, so we might be mixing that up a little bit and see if we can't get some guest hosts from around the world even. Yeah, I've got to share the airwaves a little bit, right? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, we have an interesting show for you this week. Uh, we were able to catch up with someone who's really the doyen of British dressage and has been the driving force behind it for many years now. That's Canadian Desi Dillingham. Many of you in Europe will know of Desi. She's vice president and former chair of the British Dressage and also president of the British Horse Society now. She was awarded an MBE for her services to equestrian sport by the Queen. And she's also head of British dress, British breeding as well. And she's going to come on and tell us uh, really about the story, how she got involved and how she's really changed the shape of British dressage to to the place it has now in uh, in the global sport that we have and really making its mark finally. So we're really looking forward to having her on, uh, Heather. Yeah, I, um, I, you've told me a bit about her, and I'm very excited to hear about what she has done so far and what she has in store for the future in uh, British Dressage. So that's going to be an exciting interview. Well, we, before we get to that, Heather, we, we have got some items of news this week that we just want to touch on. And, uh, and starting off really with the news from the, from the U.S. Uh, here about uh, the new um, Chefter Keep and te- technical advisor that's been appointed, and that's Anne Gribbons. And I think there was a little bit of confusion as to you know what her role would be, and uh, and and the role of Morton Thompson, who was also named in this mix. So we, we just wanted to clarify that that uh, the the eligible athletes committee of the U.S. Equestrian Federation that conducted the interviews with all the three final candidates. 
and that was Anne Gribbons, Morton Thompson and Robert Dover, and made their recommendations to the High Performance Dressage Committee to name Anne as the full-time chef to keep and technical advisor, which would be a comparable position with that uh, in in eventing, which is uh, Mark Phillips, of course, and George Morris for show jumping. Um, and since since they will have the same roles, um, they gave her the same title to be consistent across all the Olympic disciplines. So they're no longer using the te- the term of team trainer within those Olympic disciplines. And but of course, um, her appointment is subject to um, to uh, approval, and it has to has to go through the USEF's um, uh, executive committee and uh, finalise negotiations with the with the CEO. Um, but we wanted just to clarify that that is a process. It's a bit like the Supreme Court justice here in the U.S. having to uh, having to go through the uh, confirmation process, and so that's taking place uh, now as we speak. And at the moment, we understand that no role for the Danish dressage trainer Morten Thompson has been approved, um, and that though an, an official function is not at this point ruled out. So we just wanted to clarify that. Heather, I know you've been part of the committees, haven't you? You're on the USEF committee yourself. Yes, I am. I'm on the Eligible Athletes um, Committee and have um, gotten a chance to, to put in my two cents. And um, I'm just uh, I'm excited about the prospect of having a, a, um, a chef and technical advisor and another person as the possible um, trainer, so I think it's uh, an exciting thing to ch- for us to change. We've had uh, held by the same person, Klaus Balkenhall, for the past eight years, and so this will be a really different way for us to be organized. And I'm very much looking forward to it. Terrific. Well, we hope to get uh, Anne Gribbons on the show here when the dust has settled and she's her, her, she's been confirmed uh, with her appointment, and look forward to telling to, to talking to her and hearing about her plans for um, U.S. dressage now with uh, the World Equestrian Games just around the corner. So we look forward to to getting Anne on the show in the very near future. But meanwhile, we have some news from your neck of the woods in Denmark. Uh, Heather, you remember that beautiful mare, that grey mare, Blue Horse Matinee, ridden by Andreas Helgstrad? Of course, uh, she's been retired to to stud now as a full-time brood mare. You remember that she injured herself um, when she headed over to Vegas for the World Cup. And she had to be scratched there from the competition. Well, it appears that the 12-year-old mare um, didn't really recover as they they hoped and uh, uh, not to get back into competitions. But the advantage of being a mare, of course, is that they can retire her very gracefully to to start as a a brood mare. But she'll be missed. What, What a sight she was, wasn't she? Yeah, you know, she hit the world in a way that I, I don't know of any other dressage horse that has. I think um, there's a there's a video of her on YouTube that has just millions and millions of hits. And <laughs> people who know nothing about dressage at all know about matinee. So she's really, um, you know, quite a horse in the history of dressage and um, yeah, really fantastic, fantastic piafassage. So, and, you know, what a, a nice thing when you have a mare that you can retire them and they still have such um, a bunch more. Or even to offer as a broodmare, and hopefully, you know, they they um, don't have any problems getting her in full and having her full out. And she's only twelve, so you know, think of how many babies she could um, she could have. So that's um, I, and I've been wondering, you know, what's been happening with Matinee. So I was happy to see that bit of news and that she's um, got that that future ahead of her. And real excited to see what she what she produces. 
Really, absolutely. As nice as you say, for her to be able to have a second career. Yeah. Well, talking about career emergence again, we hear that Painted Black is back. You know, Anki's uh, famous partner, you know, was injured earlier this year and only left the competition circuit for a while. Well, he's made a comeback and apparently she's delighted with him. Uh, He scored a 76.3 in a Grand Prix in uh, Belgium just last week. Um, So that's good news for for Anki. And uh, I think she's feeling the competition heating up again and, of course, heading towards the Europeans in just a very few short weeks here. So I'm sure she'll be glad to to get him back uh, fit and sound and back in the uh, arena. Well, we also want to congratulate Lauren Samus. She had a great weekend, too, up in Sogatiz at the show there in New York State. You know, the Pan American team gold medalist and individual silver medalist with Sagacious HF. Um, she re- really withstood the heat up in uh, New York there last weekend and uh, won the Grand Prix freestyle. So a great win for her in that CDI three-star. Uh, good luck to her again. And she obviously is going to be trying to catch the selector's attention. I think that's a great win for her, isn't it, Heather? Yes, I mean that's a fantastic score, and it's only a ten-year-old horse. Um, I, I know he was just uh, was it last year in the intermediate championships, uh, and then in the Pan Am games. Um, was this one of his more one of his beginning Grand Prix? Do you know, Chris, if he's been much in the Grand Prix ring, or I is this his, no. just pretty much his debut? I don't know if it's his debut, but uh, I think it's got to be one of his earliest, biggest successes uh, at this level. Uh, well, there's bound to be a great future with those two. She's a great rider, and it's just a fantastic horse, and the, the two of them are just really made for each other, so we'll have to definitely keep our eye on them as the way comes around next year. Yep, good. Well, good luck to them, and that really wraps up our news for for this week. And before we get to our first guest on the show, we really want to take a moment here to hear from our sponsors, Equestrian Life. It is fantastic to have our friends at Equestrian Life as the title sponsors for the Dressage Radio Show. If you have not been to Equestrian Life yet, you need to go. In addition to being the official social community for the Horse Radio Network, it is one of the fastest-growing horse communities on the Internet. It is truly the Facebook for horse people. The goal of EquestrianLife.com is to bring equestrians together and to provide them with the breadth and depth of information and tools they need to learn and connect with other horse lovers who share the same passion. EquestrianLife.com is a fun, inviting website that strives to provide its members with a world-class experience that fosters the expression of all the ways people enjoy their horses and the people who are part of the horse world. EquestrianLife.com's social media platform provides users with cutting-edge applications and tools, such as people in horse profiles, social Q&A, status updates, messaging, photo uploading, groups, comments, blogs, expert high-definition videos, directories, birthday reminders, alerts, messaging, and on and on and on, in addition to their partnership with the Horse Radio Network. This community is designed by horse people for horse people and is filled with educational and entertaining video and audio all about our horses. Ride on over to Equestrian Life today, sign up for free, and tell all of your friends. If you love horses, EquestrianLife.com is the place to be. Well, thank you again to our sponsors, Equestrian Life, the presenting sponsor for the Dressage Radio Show. Well, we're coming to our guest on the show this week, 
Heather, who, as I said earlier, has really been the doyen of British dressage. She's now the president of the British Horse Society. She was awarded the MBE, which is the member of the British Empire, for her voluntary services to equestrianism um, just earlier this year by the Queen. And uh, she's been, as I say, member of the British Horse Society now for a while. She's been very involved with them, but her work with the British horse with the British dressage is legendary. I hope one day that she will write her biography because it's a fabulous story of you know energy and enthusiasm and passion for the sport and how she's turned it around. And so we'd like to welcome Desi to the show and uh, of course honor her uh, for her honor of, of uh, being awarded the MBE. So uh, let's listen to uh, what Desi has to say. Okay, well, Desi Dillingham, well, well done. I really appreciate you joining us. Um, you know, I know you, you, you have so much going on in your life, and uh, we really appreciate you spending the time. And welcome to your first appearance, of hopefully of many, on the Dressage Radio Show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Well, delighted. well, you know, your story is phenomenal. I hope you're going to th- think about writing your own memoirs one day because, uh, as we said in the introduction, you've really been the doyen of British dressage. And for the sake of our, our, our listeners who maybe don't know the, your story, how you got from Canada to the UK and got involved with the sport, tell us a little bit about how that, that all began, Desi. I am Canadian from Montreal. My mother's dream was to ride Olympic three-day. So I was born with a pony waiting for me and had the Olympic dream with us all our lives. Women were not allowed in the end to ride until 1960, Rome. And at that point, my mother had four children and she was too old. But we inherited the dream. Um, I come from a family. We had 30 horses. We showed every minute of every day, every summer. Um, we did. My father was master for 25 years of our local hunt, the Lake of Two Mountains in Montreal. And we did horse shows every single weekend, all summer long, from the time I was born until I was in my early 20s. So what took you to the UK? I... Um, I loved business. I rode in the World Horse Spectacular in Expo 67, and um, I ended up getting myself a job uh, to help pay for my MGB, which my father gave me. He always (laughs) said I had a four-wheel personality. But I was one of Canada's top young riders, uh, certainly in showing and in eventing. And, I mean, I rode my first advanced when I was about 14 or 15 and had to get special approval from the CEF because I was so young. So as a family, we were a great riding family. And when I had the opportunity through my business, uh, I was working for one of the biggest recruitment companies in the world, and it was Canadian, and they were buying back a lot of their franchises in Europe. So I ended up coming over here for one year, and I thought, great, I will get to see Europe on an expense account. I had 18 cities in the U.K., four in Switzerland, five in Germany. Our head office was Monte Carlo. So I got to see all of Europe on an expense account and thought, wow, I'm here, and I'm going to get away from horses, and I'm going to be free and whatever. But again, if you have a love and a dedication Within two weeks of arriving in London, I was teaching at the Knightsbridge Barracks in the middle of London. 
And um, then I ended up running one-day events in Kensington Palace Gardens, and I did it all as a secondary type of thing. But because I had such a love and such a depth of knowledge, I found that I picked up new friends. I was accepted immediately into all sorts of areas of the horse world. So it gave me a wonderful life to go alongside my business world. Now, what what steered you then into dressage, and what were you, what was the, the the shape of British dressage, if you will, at that time, Desi, that inspired you to get so involved and so motivated into steering it in a new direction? What happened is that, as I said, I came here to get away from horses, and of course, you never leave your passion. And I did lots of little things, but then I uh, went to a lunch at Olympia, which is the biggest horse show, certainly in Europe, if not the world, and uh, I met Jenny Lauriston-Clark, and, and that was in the early 80s. I was just in the midst of leaving the company that had transferred me there and setting up my own business, and I met Jenny, and I listened to her passion for dressage. As a child, I took lessons from Podiski because he would come to be in Montreal with George Jacobson, who was head of our federation, and etc. So, and I both Aunt Barbara Kemp, my aunt Barbara Kemp, had been at the Spanish Riding School. I believe she was there for six months and was one of the first females ever to be there. And my godmother was Leslie Vanderplatz, and again, she was one of Canada's first dressage riders. And uh, so I did have a base of dressage, but it just sort of took over when I met Jenny. And I started sponsoring her, and I sponsored her for 18 years in the end through my business. Oh, inter- interesting. And then, of course, you obviously had a 30,000 feet view of British dressage at that time, Desi. What did that look like to you? I'm sorry, what, what? I... I uh, you, 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 what did I do? Yes, you, when, I the, view that, off, the view you had of British dressage at that time. Well, um, they were very much dressage in this country. This country, I mean, the UK has the most fantastic background of hunting and of racing. And the spin-off of that meant that we had the best eventing and show jumping team in the world for years and years and years. And we had the most bold thoroughbreds that just as a spin-off from both of those things, uh, the hunting field as a place to test the horse, but the breeding of the wonderful chasers and, you know, everything from racing, we automatically had world supremacy. We did not have world supremacy in dressage. We were very much the poor relative. And um, we were way behind. I My first job that they asked me to help out with was to come on to the Olympic fundraising, which was fantastic. That's where I met Mark Phillips, who's now one of my best friends and has been since then. And we did the fundraising. And in those days, dressage was terribly poor. I mean, we had people that raised 10,000 pounds for a dinner in eventing or in show jumping and dressage. We had, you know, one or two people that would go off and give a lecture demonstration and only raise 500 pounds. And in 87, I was dancing on the dance floor at the Grosvenor House Hotel, 
and I had just started on to the um, dressage marketing committee, and the then chairman of the British Horse Society tapped me on the shoulder. His name was Peter Fennick, and he said, uh, do I understand that you've joined the marketing committee of dressage? And I said, yes, that's right. I'm so excited. It really is. He said, good. He said, we've approved £100,000 today to secure the UK having their first ever uh, European championships at Goodwood in 1987. And he said, I knew that you had the right drive and that I know I can pass the responsibility on to you to find the sponsor, which ruined my evening, but he said made his a pleasure. <laughs> and actually, I met someone that night called Mark Barker, and the two of us went about, and we ended up bringing in Polly Peck. And Polly Peck came in with 150,000 pounds and sponsored the European Championships at Goodwood in 1987. And I guess I never really looked back after that. Um, I was hooked, and I was lucky because they then asked me at one point to join the main dressage committee. And I remember phoning my mother in Canada, and she said, well, I hope they can find a job for you because they're not exactly going to ask you to write the next dressage test. <laughs> 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 and um, I said, well, they, they say they do, Mom. <laughs> and, of course, it just went on from there. Uh, in 1990, they encouraged me, and I did not want to take over running the supporters of dressage and um, because I was so shy, I didn't want to stand up and talk to, you know, 15 people at the AGM. But anyway, they, they, the Mrs. Steele, Bobby Steele, and who owned Dutch Courage and sponsored all of Jenny's big horses, had owned all of Jenny Lewis and Clark's big horses over the years. They sort of dragged me in. And we had 200 members. And I remember someone saying, you'll never get a supporters club together until you start winning Olympic medals. And I thought, I'll show you. <laughs> and again, we ended up with 3,000 members, and we were the biggest support group. And I ran that from 1990 till 1996. And we expanded. I mean, the first night, I said, what we need is headphones, maybe. And we didn't even have the money. And I had to lend them the money to set up headphones for six people. And then I would talk I love talking people into things, and I would get Nick Williams or I'd get Mariette Vitage to talk to my to my members. I ended up with the headphones going all over Europe. We ended up with 80 headphones, and I would go to an international. I would book the whole side of the arena. I would go and get Mariette Vitage. I'd get all of those top names. Stephen Clark, and they would sit and they would talk on the headphones. And that's how we trained our judges. That's how we got people to get the bug. I mean, I know we used, they used to laugh at us, but I got the last laugh because they realized that all of a sudden Great Britain was really a force to be reckoned with. Well, that's certainly the case now, but it, during this process of promoting the sport at these levels, at the, at the higher levels too, Desi, you've always also watched the young, the, the young people and the lower levels, you know, emerge and, and pick up momentum in a way that, you know, you could only dream of, you know, because it all begins at grassroots, right? You know, when I took over, like what happened is I ran the supporters from 1990 to 1996, 
And then 1996, I was actually, I was, had been on the dressage committee for two years, and I was standing down to set up the supporters of breeding, thinking I could do the same thing. I don't believe you stay around anywhere too long. You get in, you do your best, and you get out has always been my policy, and I always move on. My heart may remain somewhere, but I believe that you have to let other people have their way as well. And so what happened is I was standing down from the main committee when they came and said dressage is in trouble. They'd lost a lot of money. Um, they had uh, they had really there'd been a big sort of upset with the British Horse Society. We had world class performance funding coming in. The British Horse Society was a charity, and the UK sport could not give money for the elite athletes to a charity. So there had there was a, a big breakaway, and unfortunately, the one thing that really lost out is the horse that we love so much. But I did not lead the charge, but I inherited the charge. Eventing had already left, the pony club had left, and things were very much on the change. The BSJA had always been its own person anyway. What the history here is that in 1923, um, show jumping in this country started, the BSJA. And um, I actually looked up the figures somewhere today. Uh, to try to get them for you. But, I mean, the um, FEI started before that. Then there was the BSJA. And then what happened is that the British Horse Society started in 1947. And in 1948, with the onset of badminton, horse trials became its first entity. And the BHS said, look, we've got offices. Come on along. And so they took over as had an office within the British Horse Society. And then it wasn't until 1961 that the same thing happened to dressage in this country. And again, the British Horse Society said, come on, we've got an office, come in and join us. So that we were all under the British Horse Society. And that went on very happily for a long time. But what I inherited, I had to take over as a director of the British Horse Society in 1996, so that year, to try to get dressage back on a financial footing because it was as good as bankrupt. And we got it turned around in six months. We got it 60,000 quid profit in the first six months. It was just a matter of managing it like a business. And to be honest, I had no confidence in my own ability. I knew I had run my own business and I'd been in recruitment all my life but I wasn't sure that I had transferable skills to, um, to run something else. And actually, it was wonderful for me because when I got in there, I realized that I could transfer the skills I had. And we took it around. We turned it around. And because it was bankrupt, we had very little opposition. Everyone was delighted to have someone take it over. And there was myself and two other people and we just had a ball. We really worked so hard. We loved it. We turned it around. And then what happened is that the board said, well, you've turned it around. Now we have to go to the membership and see if they want to be like the rest of the disciplines and stand on our own two feet. And I said, that's fine. But, you know, I've done what my remit is and I'm, I've got to go back to my own business. <laughs> 
And what happened was that they said the membership want to go on their own, but they want you to head it up because they know that you've already turned it around and that there's going to be a lot less problem rather than putting in a new board. So I agreed to take it on for one year. I wrote a letter to the membership, and I got £64,500 in Founder Life membership fees. And um, from there, we then took it, as of 1998, onto our own um, completely. Uh, we had to leave all our money, all our reserves behind with the British Horse Society. But what is perfect and which people today... Uh, don't even, you know, would love to have is we had a complete clean slate. We actually had a greenfield site and we could set the whole sport up from scratch, which is what we did. Well, that's fantastic, Dizzy. It's it's um it's amazing, you know, where you've come in and what you've done to this point. What would you say that you've seen in the quality of horses in the UK since um, when you when you started there um, up to now? You noticed oh. a big difference, and is that really improving? You know, can I tell you, we are so lucky in this world. Now, when we talk, obviously, I'm Canadian. I'm from Montreal, and you know. The thing wrong is that Canada is such an enormous country, as is the U.S. Now, I was able to take a Greenfield site. We set up our constitution. We looked at the problems. We'd had a chairman that had been head of the sport for 20-some-odd years, and there had been no secession, no voting, no nothing. And at the same time, that person ended up because they stopped riding, they ended up head of selection and the chef to keep. And that they, all three jobs were in one person's hands. And what we needed was transparency in a new system. So I put together a fantastic board, Stephen Clark, lots of those people that are really well known in the sport, all came to our aid. I was the business person. I have business and enthusiasm and the rest of them had the knowledge. <laughs> and we put together a completely new article of association. We put it that as a chairman, I could stay for nine years, but I had to stay for, I could do three terms of three years. No other director could do more than two, year, two terms of three years each. Then everyone has to stand down. They can stand again for election the next year, but they have to be down for one full year so that no one gets complete control, so that everyone has an opportunity. We then set up the board structure and we broke it down that we had, you know, uh, one person on the board responsible for each area. So Stephen Clark came in, he was head of judges. Jane Kidd came in, she was head of international and selection. So I had the best people most respected people in the world in this country, and I was able to put them all in key positions. And then they would build their committee under them of the great and the good in that area, and those committees would come forward with their suggestions, and that chairman would bring it to our board. So our board did not have complete control of the sport, but if the judges had a suggestion and it was properly monitored and properly presented, we obviously just, you know, approved it. 
And that's how we grew. We also have fantastic people in this country that believe in the sport and live and give hugely, hugely towards helping us um, as we go along. I was given the opportunity for, I ran the World Cup at um, Horse of the Year in the early 90s. And, you know, like, if you take a look, when I was head of the supporters, what we needed to do was the people around the little shows in the north of England could never get an international judge. It was too expensive. So the supporters would pay for a judge, and we would bring them to, and we'd let them go to three shows, and we'd pay their airfare. That's how Tron Asmir, who's now head of dressage at the FEI, he came over like that. So did Christoph Hess. All of these people that are now great friends and really helped the UK develop, well, the supporters brought them in and gave them their first opportunity here. You know, so there's all these things. They all come home to roost. But also what happened when I was running dressage, um, Simon Brooks Ward said, okay, what would you say if we gave you um, dressage to music, uh, you know, an actual World Cup qualifier at Olympia? I said, that's five weeks from now. And he said, yep. And I said, how many seats? He said, 7,000. I said, let's see what I can do. Now, the first thing I was able to do was fill all the boxes with the people with the black tie and, you know, and those were all the companies and stuff like that. And then we wrote letters from the bottom of our hearts. We wrote emails. We have a regional structure. We got the regional structures. We said we'd help them hire buses, you know, coaches, and they would bring people in. And we got 5,800 people five weeks later at Olympia. Wow. We've got well, the most... Sounds... What people have to understand is it's a lot easier than it would be in North America because you look at London, Edinburgh, which is the north and the south of this country, and those are only 400 miles apart. It's like Montreal, Toronto. It's like Toronto, New York. It's like Montreal, Boston. It's a very small area. Well, you're um, quite the fundraiser and quite the delegator, too. I think that sounds really interesting to have put uh, the jobs into very capable hands and, and different hands for different jobs. And do you think that the result of, of that really has been, um, you know, in general, a higher quality of horses uh, in your country? And, um, you know, what do you think about the number of Grand Prix riders in the UK and about, um, you know, who might be in line for the, the next team? Well, I mean... <laughs> See, what, one of the things we did is because we're business people, a couple of us that did that, we tried to see the bigger picture, okay? So I'm going to say, like, we looked at our sport, and we really, we locked ourselves away in a hotel for three days. We got the hotel to give it to us for free. <laughs> they happened to like dressage. <laughs> and um, I love doing that. <laughs> That's my strength. And um, we locked ourselves away, and we said, okay, let's take a look at the sport. And, like, we had 8,000 members when we were a member of the British Horse Society, but when we actually broke away, we only got 5,300 that came with us as the hardcore. And um, then we looked at, okay, if we take a look at our national championships, only 3% of our members get to the nationals. So what happens to the other 97%? So then we had things called regional finals. So we turned around and we said, let's make these regional finals really special occasions. 
so that if someone gets to the regional final, that is a championship in itself. We called it a champion. We made it a big occasion. We had wonderful sponsorship in John Chu and Shell Gas, and we made a party. And, of course, I love the parties. We had a party at every regional champion. So automatically, that took in another 20% of our members, and only 3% of the whole population gets through to the nationals. But we've just looked after a much bigger percentage. We then turned around and we said, okay, and what do we do with the people after that? We set up area festivals and we said, if you can take an affiliated test that you've written that's between 58% and 62%, you can take that and show that and we have now the area festivals for you. And we got a big sponsor in Pet Plan in that and we just took off around the country. So that, that was another 40% of our members. So all of a sudden, we have got 60% of our members being able to go to a party. Okay? And I say a party, I mean a high event where they can aim for. Then when I took over, young riders under 16 were not allowed to ride dressage, and no ponies were allowed. Well, I opened that up. If the pony's good enough, let it come in. I'm still getting stick today about that. Uh, but I think if a pony can do well, why not? And under 16s, we had Egon von Graetz. They set up BIRDS, which is the British Young Riders Dressage Scheme. And Egon went abroad with our young riders. He saw that these other countries had fantastic training. He went to his friends. He raised the money, and he put in a, tra- a training system. And, of course, BIRDS today is still feeding our whole young rider movement. Okay, we then, uh, ponies, we opened that up. At the same time, the paras, we had always allowed in British dressage or, or dressage as it was before, that no matter what disability a rider had, everything would be overseen if they wished to ride dressage. So we already had a lot of the para riders riding in dressage, but with the onslaught of world-class funding and everything, all of a sudden there was para dressage. So I had para-dressage come under British dressage as I ran it. And, of course, they ended up with masses of medals, so it certainly helped with our funding as the overall sport greatly, I have to tell you. So in all of this, Desi, the standard of dresses dressage and the horses that uh, Heather was just alluring to, alluding to was... You know, that obviously has moved up a notch. And as you now get towards selection for some major championships, you've got the European Championships coming up shortly. You've got the World Equestrian Games here, of course. You've got every single... Okay, Carl Hester came from the Isle of Sark, and the Isle of Sark has no cars and has no transport. It only is horseback. And Carl learned to ride bareback on a pony as a child. And then he ended up coming to England, and he was riding at the Fortune Center, and he had real flair and everything, but he had nothing behind him. And we put up something called talent spotting, and he was the first person ever to be talent spotted. Okay? Then you look at Emma Hindle, and you look at uh, Laura Bechtelsheimer, and you look at Marie Alberg. Now, obviously, Eilberg and Bechtelsheimer are born <laughs> with dressage in the blood because of Ferdy and Dr. Bechtelsheimer. But Maria, uh, but, um, you know, Emma, they all came through ponies, young, uh, juniors, young riders. They've been with us. They are absolutely born and bred 
British, which we've never, ever had before. Even Fiona Bigwood, another one that came up through the ponies. So we are knocking on the door with all of these people that have come through our system now, and that's in my lifetime. Yeah, I mean, that, that really is an amazing story, Desi, you know, how British dressages emerge now onto the world stage with a lot, of, you know, with the force of, and as you say, these are British bred. These are, you know, all they're all made in England, the horses and the riders, and it yep. really speaks to the energy and, and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the determination that you've had behind this. And, you know, we've really enjoyed hearing about it, Desi, today, because I think, you know, people know you well in England, but I think in the, in, in the wider world of dressage, I think this is an opportunity to also speak about what you've done and how it can apply to other countries. For example, over here, how maybe some of the programs that you mentioned to me before, there's some that, that really could translate to other countries and in, well, in order to I grow think, the sport. you know, the one, okay, what we did, okay, okay, we put in the, the committee structure, we put in the training, we brought in foreign trainers at the same time we got world-class funding and could afford to have a trainer like Conrad Schumacher and all of those. But also what we did is we tried to analyze why people were afraid to come into dressage. And, like, the first thing we did is said, okay, we allowed them, I call it a ticket to ride. We call it class tickets. We allowed them to have six tickets to ride. They could pay six pounds a ticket, and they could buy six tickets, and then they could opt to ride in an affiliated dressage against anyone. And these people came in and thought, oh, my goodness, they're not snobby. They're people just like me. And look at me. I'm in the big time, and I've just got, you know, a 62%. So all of a sudden, people came and tried that, and it really worked. At the same time, we had a financial difficulty in the beginning, and we thought there's so many people out there that cannot afford, um, you know, us to raise our levels. We'll lose our membership. So we set up a levy, and that levy was two pounds a class. It was actually three pounds, and I phoned today and found out it's now two pounds. You never let a levy go once you've got it. <laughs> but what it is, is like a rider like Carl Hester, who's a professional, may ride 10 tests a week. Well, he should pay an additional two pounds per class, and he then is paying as he's using the system. And if there's a little kid that's a secretary and has got a little DIY yard, and she only rides once every three weeks, then she should only pay for that one class. So we had this, this levy system, which is, I, you know, which is I called pay as you go, and that worked. Then we turned around and we did the restricted. Now you've got amateur owner in the States, okay? Yes. And I grew up in amateur owner division and knowing how successful it was, but we could not put that through. Believe me, Sandy Phillips and myself and lots of people that knew the system tried and tried and tried. And I never got that through my board. They felt it was elitist because and they also felt there was a gray area. Although I know in North America, amateur owner really does sort itself out. But in this country, there can be someone that may be, have an office job. They may have two horses. They may have another three stables that they rent out to a DIY. They may then do a bit of teaching. So the, muddy, the waters are muddied as to whether they, what's their profession. So we put in a restricted and an open division. And restricted means you're riding at that level and you've never been able to ride at the level above it. So that you 
are competing against like-minded people. We stopped the professionals coming in. We graded our riders from 1 to 10, and the 1 are the international riders, and we didn't let them ride in preliminary, novice, or um, elementary. They cannot start until they're riding at a medium level. So that all the ones at the lower level get a chance to ride themselves and they're not against, they're more against like-minded people. So they're encouraged. They don't feel deflated because they're so far behind. Yeah, you know what I mean? one, that's so absolutely important. Well, I, it's, we're playing running out of time here, Desi, but we're going to have you back on the show when we've got more time because, you know, it's really exciting what's happening over there in Europe and we enjoy listening to you and, and, and your enthusiasm, of course, which is very contagious. And <laughs> so uh, we're going to get you back on the show here later in the year. And uh, I, I, I wish you all the best, uh, Desi, and I thank you so much for spending time with us. And good luck at the European Championships. Hopefully, hopefully the British will, you know, rise again and you'll be on that podium. You watch this space. It's the first time ever we are going into a Europeans with the chance of an individual medal. Well, that's wonderful. As well as team. Well, terrific. Well, the very best of luck to you, Desi, and uh, stay tuned. We'll have you back on again. Okay. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Well, wow, what a uh, what a person she is and a go-getter and what energy she's got and just really interesting and um, they're just super lucky to have her over there in the UK, aren't they? <laughs> Well, they really are, you know, and it just shows if you've got that kind of energy and drive and enthusiasm, what can be achieved? Absolutely. Well, really great luck to her and what's coming up for, for British dressage in the future. Yes, and we look forward to seeing what, what medals they come away with from the European Championships uh, in just a few short weeks' time. All right, well, we're going to take another break now before we get to our training tip of the week and uh, and uh, give our sponsors, KPP USA, um, a moment to uh, promote their products here on the Dressage Radio Show. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back with Heather's training tip of the week. Well, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know we talk a lot about Kentucky Performance Products, and that's because they are a name you can trust to give you the most value for your supplement money. Kentucky Performance Products offer supplements designed to target specific problems that are made with high-quality ingredients included at effective levels. The company's supplements are intended to complement, not compete, with your dressage horse's current feeding program, guarding against over-supplementation, and each product is backed by sound research and the money-back satisfaction guarantee. And today, we'd like to talk to you about Nalox, the original equine antacid. It's recommended by veterinarians and leading horsemen as a way of maintaining a healthy stomach, which reduces the risk of ulcers. Nalox can be given daily to horses exposed to stressful conditions or as needed when shipping, competing, or during stall confinement. You know, you can learn about Nalox and all the products at Kentucky Performance Products at KPP. USA.com. That's Kentucky Performance Products at KPPUSA.com. Well, thanks again to our sponsors, KPP, from here in uh, Kentucky. And we're coming now to Heather's uh, very popular training tip of the week. What, what have you got for us this time, Heather? 
Well, I have kind of a, a simple concept, but I think an important one. And um, two two parts. One is that when you are um, learning, and um, of course we're all learning until the day we die in this sport, we're never finished. And as you're learning in dressage, I think it's important to um, um, just think that you should question everything. Um, you know, even if something that you have been told was said or printed by the greatest master in the whole world, I still think it's important to just as each individual out there learning how to do this um, should question everything so that you learn it into um, into a deep part of your brain or in a deep part of you that really makes sense and you really understand it. Um, you know, rather than just saying, well, I'm doing it because I read it or I'm doing it because I was told – um, you know, if you learn something, do it. If it makes sense, then you can understand it at a, at a level that it, it's almost like you um, can sort of invent the feelings from the instructions yourself. And so that's the second part that I like to think about is um, I think we're all out there also to kind of reinvent our own wheel. And, um, I mean, horses have always been horses ever since the beginning of time. They've always had the same um, – language, the same um, psychology, and dressage is always going to be built on the same training scale, scale, you know, rhythm, suppleness, impulsion, engagement, straightness, collection. That's always going to be the same, and you can read those things, and you can try to do them, but I think you still have to, by questioning everything that you read or learn or try, um, get to the point where you can kind of reinvent that yourself, as if no one ever told you about the training scale. You can come to the point where by learning and experiencing and questioning things and learning from how your horse is responding to you and how you, that you communicate back and forth, that you kind of end up, in a sense, inventing it yourself again. And you can say, wow, well, that's what the people before me have said, or that's what this master in history have said. And um, I, I think that's an important thing to um, kind of have in mind, that you don't have to be told how it's going to go, but you can question everything to the point where you can you can get to it on your own does that make sense to you chris <laughs> yeah it does you know and it's interesting i mean like yourself you know i've been around the world and i've listened to different people different cultures different trainers different disciplines and you know everyone has an opinion and style and uh you know forebearers and you know the masters of classical dressage and and so on over the years but i think I think the key, as you say, is to question all the things that you learn and pick from them. You know, it's kind of picking the cherries, isn't it? You know, and what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And while it might have been a standard protocol or procedure back in the day, you know, with that system, there may be just mm-hmm. something you can pick from it. But you have to, as you say, challenge your own thought process and, and, and how you interpret that to work for you and that particular horse. Well, I think that's right, and and I also see one of the problems I see with people who maybe don't think so much that way is they might pick um, a, a rider who tends to win a lot, um, a popular professional in their area or in the world, and they might emulate things that that rider does without really understanding why and or, you know, the, the how underneath it or have had the same foundation as that rider has up to that point. Um, things like that, and they can end up sort of imitating things that they're not really sure why or how, um, but they do it because uh, maybe a certain person is out there winning a lot, and that's what they see them do. So um, I think even if you do see it performed at at whatever it is that you're looking at, um, how a horse is 
balance to how a horse's frame is or how the rider sits on the horse. If you, if you think that you like it, you can try it, but just question uh, things until you know the why uh, and the how behind it. Yeah, I think that's very important and a very good tip, Heather. You know, and I think, uh, you know, there's there's always going to be questions. How else do we evolve if we don't if we don't challenge ourselves and our and our thinking behind these practices? Because there are so yeah. many ways to to um, what's the expression to uh, crack a nut or <laughs> yeah to skin a cat. I hate skin that one, but they yeah. say to skin a cat. <laughs> I would never skin a cat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> I think that's uh, that was um, kind of what I had in mind for the training tip for today. Uh, well, thank you, Heather. Again, I make sure you check out all of Heather's training tips, which are also on the Horse Tips Daily show too. I think uh, Glenn has uh, adapted quite a few of them, Heather, so keep them coming and uh, we'll repurpose them so people get a chance to listen to those on, on more than one show. Well, and my request, too, is the more listener emails we have or feedback, um, the more I might be able to kind of give training tips that our listeners are interested in. Um, otherwise, I just kind of have to guess what what people might be looking for, what sort of advice they'd like. So, you know, if I get some feedback, it would be um, great for me to know kind of where to direct my training tips. So feel free to give us some feedback. Terrific. Well, speaking of feedback, Heather, you did get a response, didn't you, from your your friend up there in Sweden who you uh, replied to uh, a short while ago on the show just a few episodes ago uh, from Annie and uh, I think she she wrote back to you a much longer email this time and looked, um, obviously you'd given us some food for thought well I did and she sent uh, a nice email with some great pictures of her horse and how they're doing and um, if I could pull that up on my computer right now Chris which I don't have it in front of me it's a long email um, the gist of it was that she thought the advice was really super she has some uh, spooky horses or one um, in particular that she had questions about if she should take this horse out to competitions until the horse got more used to being at competitions and stopped uh, spooking. And my advice was that I would do more of the basic work and the groundwork and the schooling at home where the horse isn't so stressed and isn't so under pressure um, and advised her to do that kind of work at home. And then when she had better skills or better tools in the horse to grab the horse's attention, um, even at home by sort of increasing demand there, then to go out to the show ring again and try it where it's, um, you know, the pressure is on. And she just uh, responded with the answer that she was really happy to hear that. Um, you know, she had that in mind, and it's pretty much what she thought too, but she liked to hear that what the pros think and that it was going to help her a lot in um, deciding to just keep it uh, that way schooling at home and gaining a lot of trust and confidence in her horse um, and they would go back out when she thought she was ready so that was nice to get some a reply back from her and uh, to hear what she thought about my advice and um, was happy to help her out with that well terrific thank you Heather and, uh, and as Heather said keep those questions coming and suggestions for content we are always looking for your ideas we want your participation in the show so we know what it is you're interested in at all levels of the sport. Uh, so keep those questions coming. Well, that's about it for our training tips and our emails uh, this week, Heather. But uh, we do have some great, exciting giveaways for uh, four great prizes for the August Horse Radio Network giveaway 
and they're free. You just go to the website and sign up. And those four great prizes are for one from Equestrian Collections. There are two $50 gift certificates. Equestrian Collections, who bring the whole world of a un- whole universe of equestrian shopping to your fingertips at a price you can afford, and they can be found at equestriancollections.com. And from our friends at Kentucky Performance Products, they're offering 75-day supply of joint armor, a scientifically-based formula that provides your horse with the building blocks necessary to maintain healthy joints throughout his lifetime. For more information about their products, you go to kppusa.com. And the other uh, giveaway is from KBC Horse Supplies. KBC has donated, donated a very nice triple-stitched leather halter with a custom name nameplate, which sounds absolutely wonderful. This is the same top-quality halter that they sell for all their famous racehorses in Kentucky. KBC is the local Lexington company with the worldwide reach, and they can be found at kbchorsesupplies.com. If you go to dressageradio.com and click on the giveaway banner, which is on the right-hand side of the page, you can enter. It's free. It's easy. So sign up to win, and we'll be choosing the winners at the end of the month. So uh, don't hesitate to go. There's four wonderful prizes there that have been supplied by uh, very generously by our sponsors, Equestrian Collections, Kentucky Performance Products, and KBC Horse Supplies. Yeah, it's great stuff. And don't forget, you can also follow our show notes at dressageradio.com. And again, we'd love to get your feedback. You can leave a voicemail or an email. You can email us at chris at horseradionetwork.com or me at heather at horseradionetwork.com. And the Dressage Radio Show has a fan page on on Facebook, and there's a link to the page on our website. You can also follow us on Twitter at Horse Radio. And you can read my blog and get information on my clinics, and um, five of which are coming up next month, at heatherblitz.info. And we would like to thank our sponsors, Equestrian Life and Kentucky Performance Products at kppusa.com. All right, and that's Equestrian Life, the official social network of the Horse Radio Network at equestrianlife.com. And I should just mention, Heather, later this week I'm going to be filming for Equestrian Life. We're going to be covering the uh, U.S. Hunter Jumper Association's International Derby Finals, the Hunter Jumper Derby Finals being held at the Kentucky Horse Park, and that's going to be streamed live on the web. So that's quite exciting. We're looking forward to that, covering those finals. It's a two-day competition. Again, go to Equestrian Life and and follow that. We have a lot of live events and more to come, Heather. So it's very exciting what we're doing there with our presenting sponsor of the Dressage Radio Show. But uh, speaking of what's coming up, tell us a little bit more before you disappear for a few weeks, Heather, about (laughs) where your your, uh, clinics are going to be held as you set off on tour here momentarily. Right. Well, I'm going to five different locations in the States, and I I start next week. And I'm starting at... um, Dancing Horse Farm in Lebanon, Ohio, which is near Cincinnati. And then I'm going to be going from there to uh, Franklin, Tennessee, which is just a suburb of Nashville, uh, Green Pastures Farm there. And after that to um, Folsom, Louisiana, just a little tiny bit north of New Orleans. Then from there to uh, Houston, Texas. And then um, and those three are locations that I've been before. And then I have a new location starting this time, and that is going to be out in Somis, California, at um, Spirit Equestrian. So I'm very looking forward to uh, meeting some new riders 
and getting them started and definitely seeing some of my more regular riders and I'd love to um, meet anyone who wants to come also and audit the clinics and there's usually time during lunch breaks to have question and answers and you can learn a lot from, from auditing as well so hope to see a bunch of people turning out there well that's exciting Heather we really wish you the best of luck that's a great tour and I uh, wish I could catch up with you but you know if I if I can I will but I know that you're going to be heading towards some Mexican food and I know you like Mexican food right it's my favorite I just <laughs> love it <laughs> well I'm sure you don't get too much in Denmark though I hope you uh, you enjoy that and we uh, we certainly are going to miss you for the next uh, few weeks but uh, we'll catch up with you uh, on your trails and we'll catch up with you when you get back. And if anyone wants to get those dates, you can go to Heather's website to make sure um, that you know where those where those um, clinics are going to be held that uh, Heather just referred to. And, and how many lessons did you say that you're going to be giving over this next few weeks, Heather? Um, the whole tour, I think there are 112 lessons. So it's uh, I'm going to have to do some care with my vocal cords because they yes. will probably be just about finished by the time I get back to Denmark. <laughs> I know it, it challenges you, doesn't it, when you go on a long tour like that. But uh, you take care of your voice. Have have a lot of fun. Good luck with that tour. And if anyone wants to again attend any of those clinics, go to Heather's website, heatherblitz.info. You'll find the dates and the venues, and you'll also be able to. Go along and meet Heather, and I'm sure, Heather, you'll be able, happy to give people your autograph too um, if they want to come along and uh, talk about the Dressage Radio Show. Maybe we'll get some feedback too while you're on tour for some ideas uh, from your clinics, from uh, some listeners, and maybe some pick up some new listeners. Uh, absolutely. I'll bring back as much as I can. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we look forward to hearing about that. So, uh, Heather, until Reese and I meet again next week. Good luck, and mind your writing.